From the University of Cambridge and the Centre of Governance and Human Rights, I'm Lamaya Sheree with Mary Jean, and we will be your hosts in this week's episode of Declarations. This week, we will discuss the notion of a human rights-based approach to the socio-economic and cultural development of the UK, particularly in relation to race. This conversation continues with our theme of community. We shall discuss the relationship between political representation and racial equality, alongside the development of political literacy amongst young people from minority backgrounds. The Equality and Human Rights Commission was established to challenge discrimination and to protect people and promote human rights. So we will also discuss the role of the Commission in protecting people from discrimination and contributing towards the development of a fairer society. Today we are joined by our guest, Mr. Simon Woolley, Mr. Willie is the director and one of the founders of Operation Black Vote, which is an organization that seeks to promote greater racial justice and equality throughout the UK and works specifically but not exclusively within the democratic and civic framework to deliver their objectives. Mr. Willie is the former commissioner for race on the Equality and Human Rights Commission and has more recently taken the position as chair of Race Disparity Advisory Group at number 10 Downing Street. Thank you for joining us today. This is Declarations. I'll kick off with the first question. Could you please give us an overview regarding your work at the Equality and Human Rights Commission, particularly with regards to how this relates to racial equality in the UK? Hi, and great to be on the program with you both. And um, I, I guess a small point of um, clarification. I'm a former commissioner for the Equality and Human Rights Commission, but I am the chair of the Race Disparity Audit Advisory Group at Number 10 Downing Street. Uh, the, the role of that organization, and in many ways, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, is to change our uh, civic, political, uh, and economic institutions to be more representative, and more um, inclusive to the black and minority ethnic communities that we, we have in this, in this um, society. And in regards to your work at Operation Black Vote, so how does this relate to the fundamental rights of minority citizens in the UK? Well, as you know, uh, that we are some 20, 24 years old this year. So it's, it's a long time in, in this job and in this, and in this process. And some would say, in, including myself, in this struggle. You know, in many ways, we, we see ourselves as um, descendants or disciples of Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, in the United States who really sought to change the, the institutions and the infrastructure of the United States that viewed uh, African Americans as inferior and their own legal, political, religious structure was predicated on um, what, what many view as white supremacy. And in that articulation, uh, particularly in key areas, education, uh, health, employment, housing, there's been these monstrous race, race penalties. Unlike Dr. King, Operation Black Vote has sought to use the democratic process, I mean power in, in short, to uh, equip our communities not to ask for, for justice and equality, 
but to be in a position to demand it, uh, demand equality, demand rights, and ensure that our communities can begin to fulfill their great potential. And what measures do you think can be employed to quicken the process of racial equality? Well, I think there's two fundamental um, tools, if you like, that can further race equality and tackle race inequality. Uh, one is political, political power, um, which in, an, in a democracy we have the, the right to make those demands. And the other, which we haven't used um, uh, fully, adequately, is economic power. When you have economic power, you're in a position to, to if you like, decide uh, how things are run because you can make those demands. So the two, two big tools in our society is, is political power and economic power. We focus mainly on political power. To what extent should black and minority ethnic politicians be expected to represent both their constituency and communities of similar racial backgrounds? It's, it's interesting when you talk about um, black politicians representing black people because, for example, in the Conservative Party, most uh, politicians, black politicians, African-Caribbean, uh, are actually in white constituencies. That's been a modus operandi by the Conservative Party. It's much different for the Labour Party. Uh, most black MPs in the Labour Party represent largely black communities. But, you know, whether it's race or gender, there is a particular burden for those black politicians or female politicians because, yes, they've got to represent their constituency. That's what they're brought into, brought into power to do. But equally, there's an extra... Some would say burden. I mean, I, I would say, I would say enlighten, enlightenment that they ought to also speak for the millions of people who do not have a voice. Uh, so uh, if, you're, if you're a black politician, if you're an Asian politician, I think it's your duty to first and foremost speak for your constituency, but also speak for communities who do not have a voice in these institutions of power. That's a very good point. And I think just to back up what you've just said with statistics. So in England, the average size of the ethnic minority electorate and seats where the conservatives gained is actually 4.5%. So quite low, um, literally just backing up what Simon says. And then for Labour, the figure is actually 14%. So you can see the, the, the stark um, differentiation there as well. So in regards to that, do you feel that there have been any recent changes regarding the extent to which political parties have engaged with communities from minority backgrounds? Well, when we began in 1996, um, July the 16th, in the House of Commons, there were four uh, black and minority ethnic MPs, Diane Abbott, uh, Bernie Grant, Keith Farris, and Paul Botang. I called them the Gang of Four. Uh, fast forward now 23, 24 years, and there are over 50, 51 to be precise black and minority ethnic MPs. So you can see the huge, huge step forward. I think number th the third most important person in the country today is an Asian man, a Muslim, a son of a working class man. So there's been significant progress, but that's just one part of the story. Uh, the, the other part of the, that, the, the journey has not been so great. For example, unemployment of black youths, uh, is at 40, 45% in places like London, where the, the, the national average is about 12%. Um, stop and search, 
uh, in the States, you call it stop and frisk, um, has still uh, disproportionately affected black people. Some describe it, and I think correctly, as racial profiling. That you're walking along the street and for no other reason than the color of your skin, you're suspected to be a criminal or a drug dealer. So some of these persistent inequalities that hold back talent, that blight our community, are still going on. And I would say that these, these statistics have been exacerbated by two fundamental, um, I guess, things going on in our society. One has been the decade long of austerity measures, which has affected black people almost 10 times worse. And the other is the, the xenophobic genie that's been let out the bottle since Brexit. Uh, and so the, the, the summary is, is that we've made strides, but with some of these things, uh, you go forward, you go three steps forward and two back. And at the moment we're in re reverse mode. In regards to quickening, quickening up this process, like what are your thoughts on positive discrimination policies? So policies that target ethnic minorities or try to actually quicken the process of fostering racial equality in the UK? Of course, we need to fast forward progress. Uh, and particularly during these times in which racism and xenophobia are really um, dreadfully rising. But it's interesting, Lamaya, uh, that when you talk about when you talk about uh, positive discrimination or, uh, again, in the States, affirmative action, when you talk about that in, in places like Cambridge University or other institutions, you often get a uh, defense mechanism coming in, a lockdown and not engaging in any reasonable conversation. Why would you want to discriminate against white people? Why are you, why are you using discriminatory terms? So whilst I agree we need positive discrimination and, and action, I don't use that language uh, simply because I cannot get past go. The, the language we have to use is that, look, have a look at the data. For example, in education, in which black people come into uh, universities with the same grades as their white counterparts uh, and they come out with a lesser degree. Why is the attainment of black people uh, much less than it is for, for white people. Uh, why are there so few black professors in these, in these institutions? So you lay bare the facts and then begin a conversation and say, what do you think we need to do to close these inequalities? Uh, and then when they give, it, they give their, their um, methods, what we then need to say is, look, that we've used those methods, we've used that methods, and we should look at all methods, and that may include positive action. Because if we used all their methods and they haven't worked, then what? So I don't start with that because we get a lockdown in the conversation. The other point is, is of course, that we have to be, I, often to, I, I say to anyone that will listen, it's not about being brilliant. We know you're brilliant. We know you're black and brilliant. It's about being smart. And uh, often we have to use uh, if you like, our detractors' arguments for our own gain. So uh, very few, for example, white men or, or women uh, would rail against acting positive discrimination for women. Uh, 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 and for example, in the Labour Party, there's all women shortlist because they know there's a deficit need to be done. 
And so often we use those tools and say, look, you've recognized that in the short term, that we have to have positive discrimination until we get to a critical mass and it's all relatively equal and we don't need them. But until we get to that place, until we get to that place, we may have to use these short-term measures to ensure that talent gets through. So again, in summary, it's, it's, it's about being smart. What do you say to critics who say, for the purposes of national unity, why don't we follow the French model, for example? Or why doesn't the UK use the French model of being all French, and especially with regards to the skepticism with positive discrimination policies? Once again, we have to use facts, evidence, data. And the, the data shows that whilst everybody's uh, all French, they're not all equal. <laughs> and uh, that I love Paris, it's a beautiful city, but I also know that I can go into central Paris and all the posh areas and it's predominantly white. I can go into the poorer areas and it's predominantly black and brown. And so the, 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 what I can see with my eyes, what I can see by the reality of France, that they cannot deal with it because it's simply not acknowledged. Uh, and if it's not acknowledged, it cannot be dealt with. Uh, so I would rail against the French mode um, in, a, in a vociferous, in an aggressive way, uh, because that just allows people to hide behind those famous words, fraternity, e equality, and what's the other one? Um, anyway, you, I think you, you get my gist. To what extent is descriptive representation, for example, necessary in order to achieve true equality in the UK? So, um, for example, now we have, I think, 13.6% um, of our parliament from minority ethnic backgrounds, whereas our population is nearly, I think, nearly 14% um, ethnic minority. So the number of um, politicians from minority backgrounds in parliament would need to be nearly doubled in order to achieve descriptive representation. It's the same... Um, in regards to women, there's a, there's, there would need to be a lot more women in order for there to achieve 50% of women in parliament. So to what extent is that necessary in order for, for the UK to be truly equal in terms of political representation? Uh, I, again, I think your starting point of the conversation uh, leads people to lock down. Mm. And not that you're not right, you are right. We need representative democracy mm -hmm. because, you know, it just, it just, it's just right. It sounds right. It feels right. And yet we can't even we can't even get to that place because you've you've talked about you know we want we want uh, black faces in high places. The way that our detractors see that is a is a zero sum game. We win, they lose. That's the way they see this conversation. We have to reframe the conversation, and then we say, you know what, we have to look at our businesses, our democracy, our institutions. Uh, in a way that we need to ensure that talent has a place to fulfill its potential. All talent. Our starting point is there is talent in every street, in every city, in every corner of the country. Our job is to ensure that talent has a, has a pathway to go from A to Z. And at the moment, we are locking talent out. We're locking women out, we're locking people of color out. Our raison d'etre must be 
how does how do we ensure that all communities have pathways to to fulfill their potential pathways to talent and and that way you be, you are you are beginning an inclusive conversation uh, rather than rather than this zero sum we want our space we want our space you can't have it you can't have it uh, rather than that how do we get to there over there in which you have as much to benefit as i do and you benefit because around a decision making table a diverse table we have greater outcomes better outcomes better creativity better understanding better outcomes so here's the point in this conversation when i succeed you succeed when i'm locked out you are not benefited by me being locked out you may think you are because you're at the table and i'm not but in regards to delivering delivering democracy delivering business delivering creativity we're we're all better off if we have diverse decision making tables and um do you feel there have been any recent changes regarding the extent to which political parties have engaged with communities from community backgrounds let, let me just go through that question in um in another way um because uh when we began when we began operation blackbird there was a big discussion mm-hmm. about should we behave like the african americans in the united states african americans in the united states as you know predominantly 95 98% vote democrats mm-hmm. and here in the uk back then 90% of black britons voted labor these were the parties that delivered equality race equality operation blackbird concluded if we are to make the big change we need all the political parties to be vying for the black vote so if we put all our eggs in the labor party basket the the conservatives will say there's no point uh dealing with black issues because they're never going to vote for us And you know interestingly when you look at the United States now and you look at Donald Trump and the Republicans they don't even care they don't they don't even pretend to care about African Americans or Mexicans they say they are this they're that all those pejorative all those negative terms because they know they've got nothing to politically lose yeah. here we have said to we said to the conservatives actually black people are conservative with a small c in education in 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 family in uh authority if you like we said the reason why we don't vote conservatives is we think you we think you're a bunch of racists so if you change your language if you if you put black people uh, in parliament we'll begin to change so that was a game changer now you see i think between 12 and uh, 18 conservative black and minority ethnic mps and i think you touched upon issues regarding minority youth earlier in regards to engagement etc as well and so it's touched on a topic of political literacy which is something that's got a lot of press within recent years um particularly is political literacy enough to foster political participation amongst minority youth um and i read an interesting paper recently about how actually increased information can actually lead to voter apathy sometimes the 
excessive um, media reports, excessive um, political information that we hear, sometimes it can actually promote ap apathy amongst voters. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, there is no, there is no um, substitute uh, for political uh, action, mm -hmm. political interaction, backed up with literacy. I mean, you know, that you're from the millennial generation, if you like, you have, you have information overload. I mean, you know, where do you start? Where do you finish? Heaven only knows. You know, back, back then there were four, back in my day, there were four TV channels or the established newspapers and that was it. And that was even a lot. But today, you've got that times 150,000. So uh, the, 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 the interesting point is this, is that when you have your African and Caribbean society and you have these podcasts uh, where you are taking all this information that's out there and trying to distill it for your for your listeners, for your constituents. I think it's really important that you're, you're, you are helping make sense for your listeners the complexity of black politics, the complexity of university life through the prism of the black student. Um, but equally, you have to go out and interact. You have to go out and listen. You, I mean, you know, when, when Marcus Garvey uh, rallied over two, three million supporters uh, in the Garveyites. There were no mobile phones, no Instagram, no Facebook. They went on the street. They went on the street corners, in the churches, in the unions, and spoke to people. Uh, I think sometimes we've forgotten how to do that. Um, what kind of impact do you think that Brexit, and you mentioned the U.S. as well with um, the Republican Party and the recent Trump's presidency will have on um, minority communities and the conversations that we have surrounding those kinds of rhetorics. You know, the populism of Donald Trump, the populism of Brexit is, a, is real bad news for uh, African-Americans and black people in the UK and across Europe. The, the underbelly of the, of the Brexit narrative is that foreigners are bad and the blacker they are, the worse they are. Uh, I'm very worried. I'm very worried because the genie is out of the bottle and um, things could get worse before they get better. I, I've been reading with my son. We, we were looking at the Holocaust and uh, the, the, that, uh, I was reading a book called The Tattooist. And, you know, man's worst uh, endeavors uh, don't just start from the, the gas chambers. They really start from the simple demonization of one race to say that they are less than human. Uh, in the worst case scenario, they're vermin and uh, they need to be put down. And when you look what's happening in Hungary, Poland, uh, Italy, and, and France, these neo-Nazis have a number of communities in their sites, Roma, uh, Africans, Muslims, and, and then Jews, uh, in, often in that particular order. So the lessons of history are not being learned, and we are in, we are in troubling times. The answer, of course, to me, is that one, we, we acknowledge 
what is occurring and begin to organize and begin to push back on the bigotry uh, in a way in a way that says we we know where this goes and we're not letting it happen and and i would say you and your listeners and students here in this fantastic university uh, in many ways need to be on the front line the, and when you're on that front line uh, you're in the spirit of dr martin luther king and nelson mandela and many other hero and sheroes who you will follow in their footsteps do you have any lasting um, comments that you would like our viewers to hear today? Well, first of all, I'm honoured to be on your programme. Uh, I think you're doing a, just a wonderful service to the student community, black and white, as a matter of fact. Um, but I would just say, I would just say I'm, I'm giving a talk later, and one of the things that I'll be saying is that as a, as a disciple of Dr. King, I, I, uh, I had the pleasure of I've had the pleasure of working with uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson, um, a civil rights icon himself. And when he took up the struggle with Dr. King, he was about your age in his early 20s. So the, the last message I would say is, is that being active is not just for those that feel themselves as so-called fully-fledged adults ready to be in the big wide world. You're a fully-fledged adult ready to ready to change our world i just think it's time you 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 all have to step up so today we have discussed the notion of a human rights-based approach to the socio-economic and cultural development of the uk in order to enable citizens to enjoy a good quality of life based on values such as human dignity, respect, economic empowerment, social justice, and equality of treatment. Thank you to Simon Woolley for joining this episode of Declarations. Subscribe to Declarations on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at DeclarationsPod and like us on Facebook for updates. Tune in next time for more Declarations. Your host for today, me, Lamaya. And Mary Jean. Thank you for listening. Thank you.